Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Exodus 19. And uh, I would like to read verses 4 through 6 as we begin our study this morning, continuing our lesson on ministry in the church. I say that's a strange place to go when we're talking about ministry in the church, but I hope it will make sense when we consider this. Exodus 19, uh, right before Moses gives the Ten Commandments, or before God gives the Ten Commandments, rather, uh, after Israel has been brought out of Egypt. It says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. In First Peter... Chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there and follow along. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me continue reading. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." One of the often forgotten and overlooked principles or purposes, rather, of Israel in the Old Testament was to serve not as an end in itself, but rather as the means by which God would display his glory and his greatness before the nations. One of the mistakes that Israel made was its lack of holiness and its lack of following the law of God the way that God had described it and the way that God had laid it down in great detail. This was wrong in and of itself because as God's redeemed people, Israel was supposed to follow God's commandments in keeping the covenant that God had made with them. And of course, the consequences were felt throughout the nation as people were harmed, as people uh, were unholy, as People who were in positions uh, to be at the mercy of others were taken advantage of and so on. And so Israel was itself in many ways uh, often very disastrous throughout the course of Old Testament history. But there was a ripple effect from this as well, which is that Israel and its, and its uh, choice by God and its laws and commandments and its place upon the earth were not merely the end in and of themselves. But rather, God chose this particular nation to be a light to the nations. That they might be, as Exodus 19 says, a kingdom of priests. Those who would be the go-betweens between God and the rest of creation. 
Just as the priests in Israel would minister as the mediators between the rest of the people and God, so it was that Israel was as an entire nation to go between God and the world. And thus he wanted to set them apart and make them a special people in the way that they behaved. And he wanted to make sure that they were all holy to him and that they accurately represented him. Unfortunately, they very much did not do that. And instead of glorifying his name, they did what Romans 2 described as blaspheming his name among the Gentiles. His name and his reputation, God's name and his reputation were brought under reproach because the people of that nation did not follow what God had said. However, God has, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, given an analogous role to the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here you have people who live among the world, among the nations, and God has given them the task that Israel in the Old Testament had of being the ones who would display God's glory. Being the ones who would talk about how great God is. The ones who were chosen for that very purpose. To mediate God's blessings to the rest of the world. And that's why he wants them to be holy. 1 Peter 2 verses 11 and 12. Because he wants the Gentiles to see the greatness of God. And to respond by glorifying him in light of their faith and their good deeds that come as a response to this. What is the point of saying all of this? Well, the point is this, that in previous weeks, we've been talking about ministry to one another and within the body of Jesus Christ. Ministry using our gifts, ministry to one another. And the focus has been, what do we do toward our own selves? This is a vital focus of New Testament ministry, and much New Testament ministry just skips that and goes straight to everything else. It is essential and it is vital, but that's not all there is to ministry as a church and in the church because there is also ministry that doesn't get directed toward one another and toward other people in our own local church but there's also ministry that then extends out from the church ministry from the church and that's what we're talking about this morning ministry outside the church is ministry that should be done as an extension of the ministry of the church or as its individual members. Whatever else it is, there are responsibilities that we have to minister outside the church. There are ways that we can go about it, but fundamentally, this ministry outside the church should be ministry done as an extension of the ministry of the church itself or its individual members. And so what I want to do this morning is to give you some categories and some principles for ministering to other people who are not directly at your own local church, your own particular church. So this is something that is biblically permitted, I want to show you. It's biblical, there's biblical precedent for this. Uh, there are principles to consider, but I want to give you some categories and principles for how you might go about ministering to other people in these scenarios. Now, this must not be to the neglect of ministering within your own church, Because, as we've seen in previous weeks, this is vitally important for us to do as well. We must minister amongst ourselves and toward ourselves. And yet, while we do that, we also need to think about how we should serve Christ and serve others outside of 
our particular local body. So how do we think about ministry from the church or ministry extending from the church? And I want to give you five categories to consider. And then we will think about how the scripture speaks about each one of these And hopefully by the time we're done, you'll have a a better framework for what you do when you're not here, for what you do when you're not directly interacting with other people from this church, and really even how to balance and prioritize those things as you decide where to expend your ministry efforts in doing what God is pleased by. So five uh, five of these categories of ministry that extends out from the church. And we begin with the area of evangelism. Evangelism. We understand that this is a calling of the church that is vitally important. Some people would go so far as to say that If uh, God's concern is for us to ultimately enter heaven, then really the only reason the church has been left on earth is to evangelize. I would argue that that is not actually entirely the truth, but there is something to that idea that we're still here to tell other people about how they can also have an eternal destiny in heaven. And so the church is to evangelize. This comes out of the command, first of all, that the church is to make disciples. Matthew chapter 28, the church must make disciples. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Jesus wants the church to make disciples implied in the idea of baptizing them is that they have been converted out of unbelief into faith in Christ, not by virtue of being baptized, but they are baptized upon their profession of faith in Christ. Thus the Great Commission, part of making a disciple means turning them into a disciple or them becoming a disciple. This is a vital part of the church's mission. Um, The church is to make disciples by means of the word of God, proclamation of the word of God. In fact, it says here in Matthew 28, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is based upon the gospel message. It is not just people who decide to participate in church activities, but they actually need to be converted. And we've talked about this in previous weeks with the centrality of the gospel and the importance of a biblical view of conversion. Uh, But again, it's just worth reiterating that ministry in evangelism is vital, namely the proclamation of the actual gospel itself. Uh, This is backed up by the idea that in the book of Acts and in the epistles, the growth of the church is uh, equated in many places with the spread of the word of God itself. Acts 7, excuse me, Acts 6, verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You can even see in that verse these three crucial concepts of the word of God, the number of the disciples, and then the faith of believing the gospel. All of these are connected together. This is what true church growth actually is when people hear the word of God and believe it and respond to it in faith. The growth of the church was the spread of the word of the Lord. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul says that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. The gospel came to Thessalonica and then they sent it out 
to other places. People heard about what was going on. They heard the gospel message. And so it is with us that we should, as a church, make sure that we are making disciples by the spread of the word of God, in particular telling people about the gospel of Christ and how they can be saved and forgiven of their sins. People need to know that Jesus came to earth as the God-man. They need to know that he died upon a cross and that he rose from the grave on the third day. And they need to know that salvation is freely available in him for all who believe, all who turn from their sin and put their hope completely and only upon him to save them. That they can have their sins forgiven and be right with God. This is the message that we need to know and believe. This is the message that people need to hear. So if the church is going to do this, um, how does that happen? Well, some people have this as their particular job to actually carry this out. There is such a thing as a gifted evangelist or as someone who does evangelism in, in a way that is, uh, that is more predominant in their particular, particular ministry than other people. We read about this in Ephesians 4.11. God gave some, or Christ to the church gave some evangelists, it says. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. In Acts 21 verse 8, we meet a man who is called Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist. And in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, Timothy is told to do the work of what? An evangelist. To do the work of an evangelist. So it is true that there is such a thing as someone who focuses on this and who specializes in this. Now, exactly what this refers to uh, and how this plays out can vary and can be somewhat different. But this could be someone who is focusing on preaching the gospel and going out to people in, within the context of just being based at a particular local church. It could be someone who is perhaps traveling more and going from place to place or a missionary going to the frontier and trying to preach the gospel to people. How that plays out is not spelled out in a very specific way by scripture as far as what is required and what is allowed. But basically what we know is that someone who is doing this is focusing on preaching the gospel. They are making sure that the gospel is being proclaimed and presumably this is happening to people who don't know it. So there is such a thing as an evangelist and it's okay to recognize that. At the same time, such a person is not the one that the full burden of evangelism falls upon. So whereas there may be some who are more um, passionate about this, more focused upon this than other people in terms of the time that they give to it and the priority that it takes over other ministry efforts, another truth we need to remember is that all Christians should evangelize. All Christians should evangelize. 1 Peter 2.12 tells us about this. We want them to glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, Even previously in that chapter in 1 Peter 2 and uh, verse 10, it talks about proclaiming the excellencies. Sorry, verse 9. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then, of course, in 1 Peter 3.15, a well-known passage. 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense or to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so you are talking to people about this hope that is in you. 
You're giving an answer for it in part because they know that you actually believe it. And how do they know that you believe it? And what is it that you actually believe? All of this is wrapped up in that idea of actually giving an answer for it, giving a defense. What is the reason why you believe this message? What do you actually believe? Oh, you think you're a Christian, so you think this way. No, actually, we think this way, and this is what the Bible says. Well, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, here's why it does make sense in light of Scripture. And you're ready to tell people about the gospel. So all Christians should evangelize, should look to evangelize. Not everyone is going to be the Apostle Paul, who dedicates himself uh, with his entire day and night to going to new places and and starting churches and preaching the gospel in the open square and things like that, although there will be and should be some. But everyone should be looking for opportunities to tell other people about the gospel. And these opportunities can come on any number of, of areas inviting people to church or to a bible study where the word is already being taught is a very easy way to do this where you don't have to come up with anything to say really on the spot Um, you could however strike up conversations with people you can leave tracks with them you can reference them to websites you can start one-on-one bible studies with people or book studies about books on the gospel you can uh, start a group bible study and invite people to this Um, get to know people have conversations with people don't just hide out and you can try to shift conversations towards spiritual matters even to the point where perhaps they might ask you questions about what you believe you can post evangelistic links online on your social media accounts or whatever it might be that you do these are some of the opportunities that we have so prepare yourself and think in this way and be alert By the way, this is going to happen best when the church is doing ministry well to one another. Um, We talked about love for one another a couple weeks ago, John 13. How is it that all men will know that we are Jesus' disciples if we have love for one another? What is the distinctive mark that people are actually following Jesus Christ? John 13, verses 34 and 35. If we have love for one another. So if we as a church are a mess and everyone hates each other and no one's serving each other and there is no love, that's going to be a really poor gospel witness. And people can be saved despite that. But it certainly is not going to commend the message to people. And it will be a hindrance that might get in the way of people listening. An ungodly and uncaring church does not properly reflect and adorn the gospel. And just as there were a few who responded to God's word outside of Israel in the Old Testament, despite Israel's lack of godliness, so it might be also that a few will respond to the gospel despite an ungodly church. And yet it's not what God intends. And it's not the most effective way to present the message. So we need to make sure that we evangelize, that we're serving each other, that we're doing a good job of building up one another, and that we're strengthening the church, but that we're also not neglecting to preach the gospel to others. Now, on these lines of having the gospel proclaimed and a strong church, the next category of ministry outside the church should be pretty predictable, which is missions. Missions. 
Now, missions has all kinds of definitions, and most of them are uh, not being very careful to actually define what missions is. We just kind of have an idea of it in our head. A lot of times what missions means basically is going really far away to do something to do with the Bible or going somewhere that's not in our church as a special occasion or as maybe an ongoing thing to do something nice for people. Both of those are kind of the functioning definitions of what missions means in the evangelical church. But what missions might a little bit more precisely mean is taking the work of ministry to a place outside of your local church. And this can be on every level, uh, sort of concentric circles geographically, where you have local missions, meaning that you're doing the work in your own town in some way or another. So you are helping to support other churches. You are doing things that the Bible tells Christians to do in a local area. You are starting other local churches. You're strengthening them. You're, you are helping them in some way. Uh, you have domestic missions where you're doing these things in your own area or your own country. You have foreign missions, doing these works in other countries of the world. And then, of course, frontier missions, which is places where there aren't even churches existing now and may not even be believers. You're taking them to the edge, to, to, to the frontier of where the gospel has traveled. Really what you have in missions is carrying out the element of the Great Commission that says, Go going. Jesus gave the instruction to make disciples and he said to do so by baptizing and teaching and going. And the assumption is that they weren't going to be able, the disciples, to stay in Galilee or even in Jerusalem and do all the work that God wanted the church to do. Basically what this means then is that missions is about more than just what goes on in one individual local church and it is about the spread of the church across really the world and as extensively as we can possibly make it. Nonetheless, missions often misses its purpose and its greatest strength when it fails to revolve around the establishment and strengthening of local churches. Local churches. Missions that was being done in the Bible revolved around the local church if there was a church already there, it was the support and strengthening and even the appointment of leaders in the local church. It was sort of tying up loose ends. It was making sure that the church was stable, that doctrinal errors were being corrected. And where there wasn't a local church, when new converts were made, there was a church started and formed. So these missions were with the goal of either strengthening existing churches or of starting new ones with the new converts who had been made, gathering them together. When we fail to include the local church in our missions effort, then we are really going outside of God's design for what missions is even about in the first place. So we can certainly go and do good deeds that are apart from any sort of formal connection with a local church in and of themselves in some ways. We can do what are commonly referred to as missions trips, which sometimes simply consists of going somewhere far away to do good deeds because we love Christ and we want to help people. But we should be very careful that we consider, anytime we're considering how to do missions, whether it is short-term or long-term, local or very far away, we ought to consider what is the role of the local church in this, in sending, in supporting, in being supported, in being started, in being strengthened. And so basically what you have with missions then is 
the spread of the gospel resulting in the spread and the strengthening of local churches all over the world. This should be the goal, that believers are made, that disciples are made, and that they are built up and taught to do everything that Jesus commanded in a way that multiplies across the world. The church then, of course, should be very keen to do this and to be involved. You can do this by praying. You can encourage people. You can give to missions. You can even go. You can participate in them. These are some of the main ways that we might participate in missions as individuals and as a church. But we can't just limit ourselves to our own local church. We need to make sure that we are aware of what's going on, praying for what's going on, supporting what's going on, and being involved to the extent that we can and that is wise in being part of what is going on in the actual missions work itself. Missions, then, is another component of doing ministry that extends from the church. Number three, good deeds. Good deeds. We, as Christians, have been saved for, among other things, this very purpose. Can you think of any passages that tell us this? Well, hopefully, one thing that comes to mind is Ephesians chapter 2. We talk about how we've been saved, and we make a big deal about this, rightly so. But what does it say afterward? Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What is the place of works in salvation? It is not us doing good works to become saved, but rather it is in God doing a work to make us saved. We are his workmanship. He created us in Christ Jesus. He's the one that did the work. And yet we don't say, well, that's great. Now, God, you just do it all now that I'm a Christian. Instead, Paul says, God prepared something for us to walk in. He did it beforehand, but we must do it. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. In Titus chapter 2, we find part of the reason for our salvation. It says that Jesus Christ, verse 14, Titus 2, 14, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is what we as a church ought to be doing. You say, well, why are we talking about this in the context of ministry that extends from the church? Well, for one thing, uh, we are supposed to do good toward one another within the church, but that's not the full scope of where we are to do good and good deeds because we have a life that is not taking place just directly toward other people who are in the church. So we're supposed to do good deeds all the time in every setting. And while there is a priority on those who are within the church in certain ways, uh, we're supposed to do good deeds as people who are part of a church toward people who might not be. So we're supposed to do good deeds, first of all, toward our families, toward our families. We're supposed to serve them well and care for them and love them. And this is true even when it comes to the realm of our extended family. We don't just leave them behind 
in the absolute sense. Even if you get married and a father leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two become one flesh, even there, there is still some responsibility because 1 Timothy 5.8 says that if anyone does not provide for his own and especially those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Family, both immediate and extended, are supposed to be the beneficiaries the recipients of our good deeds. Now you have to use wisdom and judgment as to how much time do you spend doing these things? How much, uh, how far extended family is actually involved in this? But nonetheless, good deeds toward family members, uh, even those who are not in the church, is an appropriate and good thing to do. Uh, we're also supposed, supposed to do good deeds in our work. In our work. Working faithfully in the roles that we have. Um, even, for example, in 1 Timothy 6, if you're in 1 Timothy following along, in 1 Timothy 6, the first two verses, it refers to people who are in a role as slaves. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit our believers and beloved teach and preach these principles. We read in Ephesians chapter, uh, excuse me, uh, Colossians chapter three about slaves serving their masters and masters doing good to their slaves. So even at this level of authority outside of the family and outside of the church, in our work, we are supposed to be godly in the way that we respond to authority and the way that we work the way that we use authority. We're supposed to be eager to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul is writing to a number of uh, different people at this time, a number of uh, people in different, what we might call demographics of life. But he says this in verses 9 and 10. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, but not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. We even read in the Old Testament about people like Boaz. Who made a wonderful, safe, loving work environment for his employees. Uh, you see this when Ruth goes and he cares for her. Uh, he, it would be a blessed place to work for someone like Boaz. These are the kinds of good deeds that we can do. Treating employees well, respecting employers, uh, responding and, and making the workplace a joyful place to be for other people. These are the kinds of things that we can do as good deeds outside of the church. And then, of course, we can just take this and extrapolate this toward everyone. We're supposed to do good deeds toward everyone. We should love our neighbors Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. 39, Jesus says on this, the second great commandment, uh, as well as the first, to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God with all your heart, all of the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. And then, of course, a passage which I've referenced on a few occasions during this series, Galatians 6, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. To all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There is a priority, as is very clear here, on those who are believers. Those who are of the household 
of the faith. And this is often missed when people talk about good deeds and acts of mercy and so on. But it doesn't stop with the household of faith. We have opportunity, while we have opportunity, we are to do good to all people. And it can be a particular temptation if you have a high view of the church and a rightly high view of the church in many ways to neglect doing good to people outside the church under the guise of helping the church. When we consider the story of the Good Samaritan, what was it that prompted Jesus to tell that story? If you recall, it was a lawyer testing Jesus and asking him what the great commandment of the law is. And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, the lawyer said, yes, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Why did he ask that question? Wishing to justify himself. He was really trying to parse and say, my responsibility is limited only to this very select group of people. So while it is clear that we ought to make sure that we care for those within the church, and we'll see this even more in a moment when we consider the example of these churches working together to support the impoverished churches of Jerusalem during the time of the New Testament. Um, While we are supposed to prioritize that, we should also be aware of opportunities we have to do good to other people. And we should not neglect to do them just because we say, well, you're not part of the church. You're not a Christian, so we're going to only focus on that. Instead, we should do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Who are of the household of faith. A few thoughts on understanding then the relationship between what we've talked about so far, namely good deeds and gospel proclamation. And it is important that we get these things right, that we understand the difference between these two. So I want to just give you a few points to keep in mind. First of all, good deeds are not the gospel. Good deeds are not the gospel. We do not say we are going to go live the gospel before people, meaning that we do good deeds and that is the gospel. And as long as they see that, then that's the gospel. You've heard the phrase before, I'm sure, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. There is something that's going for, but even using that phrase does distort the idea that people need to hear the gospel message in order to be saved. No one is going to be saved by seeing that you yourself are a really good person. It might prompt them to ask or it might not. They need to hear the gospel one way or another. So good deeds are not the gospel and good deeds alone are not sufficient for people to understand the gospel. In fact, uh, people can be saved by the gospel message without any good deeds. This sometimes is missed today as well. There is a benefit to being relational in your evangelism, to talking to people and caring about them and not just throwing some, uh, some kind of gospel message at them without any concern for them as a person beyond that. And yet, it is possible for people to be saved apart from any relationship and apart from ever seeing any good deeds before they believe that message. It is possible. So we need to recognize that good deeds are good deeds. They have their place, but the gospel message is what saves No one can be saved without hearing it. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10 says, and hearing by the word of Christ. Uh, Also true about good deeds, though, is that they are part of our apologetics. They are part of our apologetics. It is one part of defending the faith. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. 
So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, namely your Christianity and your rejection of whatever the empire at that time says that you need to do in your religion, that kind of evil, he says, they're going to say, instead, your good deeds are going to convince them that God is worth glorifying. 1 Peter 2.12, good deeds are part of our apologetics. It is one part of defending the faith. Um, Good deeds should be done both because they are good in and of themselves and with evangelistic intent. They should be done for both of those motivations, because they're good as opposed to bad, and because we want people to hear from us a message that is credible. What I mean by this, just by way of example, is don't refuse to hold the door for someone just because you don't think you're going to get the chance to preach the gospel to them. But if you do something kind for someone, you ought to have in your mind as well, I also want to make sure they hear the gospel. You should remember eternal priorities. When it comes to good deeds and evangelism, in one ultimate sense, evangelism is more important than good deeds. In one sense, from one angle, because people can be the beneficiary of good deeds and yet end up in hell, but no one who believes the gospel will. Believing the gospel will give you eternal life. Seeing good deeds will not directly do that. And yet at the same time, God has saved us to walk in good deeds, Ephesians 2.10. In Titus 2.14, he commands them of us and he says that we ought to be zealous for good deeds. And so we need to be careful that we don't set one against the other as if we have to make a choice between them. We just need to make sure that we don't neglect them. We need to understand that often they can be done in conjunction with each other. And the bottom line is that we need to exercise wisdom in simply doing good deeds because that's what we have the opportunity to do in that moment versus trying to make sure that we get the gospel message out at that particular moment. We need to exercise wisdom in this. We need to be doing both good deeds and evangelism. Don't set them against each other and don't neglect either one and look for every opportunity to do each, to do both. So this is good deeds. We ought as believers to do good deeds, not only to those who are in the household of faith, but also to all men as we have opportunity. Evangelism, missions, good deeds, Um, two more here. One of them will be somewhat brief and the other will be a little more extensive. Um, Number four is inter-church ministry. Inter-church ministry. That is between churches. Ministry from people who are in one church to people who are in another church or churches ministering to one another. Uh, Romans 16 verse 16. All the churches of Christ greet you. There was an affection and a love and a mindfulness and a care between the churches of the New Testament for one another. And even if there were never to be any official cooperation on anything, just the fact that they were thinking about each other and caring for each other ought to set for us an example that this is appropriate and good for us to have other churches on our hearts. Um, In the New Testament, various people from different churches went to other churches and ministered to them. Phoebe, for example, was said to be a servant of the church at Cancrea in Romans 16.1 when she was presumably delivering the letter to the Romans. Apollos was an example of someone who went from church to church and served multiple churches. And so I want to encourage you to consider the same example and to follow that example, to know people from churches near and far 
your primary day-to-day ministry is going to be in the place where you worship week by week with other people. That's only appropriate. Functionally, it only makes sense. But there will be many occasions and opportunities where you intersect with and interact with people from other churches, Christians from other churches. And you should take advantage of that. You should grow in your heart for them. People that you might not even see, but every couple of years can still be the kind of people where you say, man, I am sending my greetings to that person. Or let me email this person. Let me text this person. And I'm so excited to see them again. Don't just restrict yourself to the people that you're going to know day by day. But build a love for people in churches in other places. By the way, one thing that can facilitate this is parachurch ministry, which we'll talk about more in a moment, which needs to be done wisely, but it can be done. And so we ought to consider how we can minister toward one another, even if we are not in the same church. Now, there are some wisdom issues and limitations involved, such as doctrinal agreement and agreement on ministry philosophy. Sometimes it's very difficult to work together if you don't have the same philosophy of ministry or the same doctrinal convictions. And so you might be able to pray for one another and to enjoy lunch together and hang out, but you might not be able to work on a particular project together. Uh, It might be that proximity of location makes things difficult or easy, or the time, the amount of time that you have, or the purpose that you each are trying to accomplish. There are things to think through with this, but in general, we ought to have a heart that longs for knowing every Christian in the world and loving them and developing fellowship with them to the extent that it's possible within our ability and our responsibilities to our own local body. So interchurch ministry is another way that we can serve out from our own church. Finally, I want to consider for a few moments parachurch ministries. Parachurch ministries. What is a parachurch ministry? Uh, A parachurch ministry is basically something that would come alongside the church or it's beside the church. It is not in the church itself, but it's something that, uh, that may be in support of it or does something at the same time. Now, there are many biblical examples of churches actually working together. Perhaps the strongest of these is the offering that took place over the course of Paul's second and third missionary journeys for the saints in Jerusalem who were undergoing a famine and who were having trouble financially. You have money given by multiple churches. The churches of Galatia, according to 1 Corinthians 16.1, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch and Derby. You have the churches of Macedonia, according to 2 Corinthians 8. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Then you have the churches of Achaia, including Corinth and possibly others. In 2 Corinthians 8, 19, you have a messenger who was appointed by the churches, plural. They all agreed. They're working together and they say, we want this guy to go. And then 8.23, 2 Corinthians 8.23, there were a number of men who were going along with the offering and they were messengers of the churches. And by the way, they came from different churches. They came from the churches in Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, and Ephesus. So what you have is people from multiple churches being appointed by multiple churches with money from multiple churches, helping other churches far away in need. So this is a biblical precedent for Churches working together to do something, and this something was not something going on directly just in the context of its own local ministry, but it was kind of a bigger project. It was temporary, and yet it was a bigger project that was going on that was the joint effort of a number of different churches. Um, 
So there is biblical precedent for churches working together, for people from other churches working together, for they're doing things that aren't necessarily going on in the week-to-week efforts of the church, although the offering was being taken up in some places in that way. But just to say that what we see and what goes on on the regular basis here is not, we are not limited just to that. Now, how do we think about parachurch ministry? Let's think about, first of all, the types of parachurch ministry. And I'm just going to read a list so that you'll have these in your mind. Uh, We have conferences, Christian schools and universities, seminaries and pastoral training academies, campus ministries, mercy ministries, Bible study and discipleship groups, publishers, broadcasters, media ministries. We have Christian music, writing, recording, and performing. We have Christian camps and camp facilities, missions, agencies, counseling ministries, including both certification organizations and training organizations, as well as actual on-the-ground counseling offices and ministries, Um, medical organizations and facilities, businesses started to facilitate evangelism, and of course now the whole new world of uh, software, Bible study software and Bible software, which is wonderfully abundant, Uh, even things that are directly used for uh, church organization. And then Of course, there are parachurch ministries that do multiple of these things. Now, as you hear this list, the the next point ought to be pretty obvious, not just the types, but also the value of parachurch ministry. The value of parachurch ministry. Think for a moment, how many of you either owe your conversion or a meaningful part of your Christian growth to a parachurch ministry of the kind that was just listed? How many of you heard a sermon on the radio? How many of you read a Christian book? How many of you went to a discipleship group on a college campus? How many of you heard a stirring message at a conference? How many of you benefited from some type of Christian school or curriculum? How many of you were counseled by a Christian who brought the word of God to bear? These are just some of the examples of the way that we all have benefited. And you can just imagine Just as a hypothetical scenario, imagine tomorrow that everything parachurch dropped and went out of existence. And what would it look like if only the things that had been produced by your local church remained? This would be pretty dire circumstances in many ways. Um, There would be very few uh, formal training institutions. The ones that did would have very few books. They would probably be poor in print quality. Um, We would have to go and talk to people individually to benefit from any kinds of messages that came outside of our own church. Um, We would have no um, Bible software or anything like that. The Bible would not be online on the internet unless we decided to begin to type it out ourselves and to get the copyright for that and make sure that we do it accurately. Things like this. It would be... um, There would be a great uh, detriment if many of the blessings that came from Christians' efforts just simply went away. Parachurch ministries can specialize in things and can do so at a scale that's very beneficial to many, many churches. And so we have the fruit of this. There are a lot of benefits that they bring, and even participating in them can be a huge way of ministering as Christians. With that said... We need to be careful in the way that we think about these and approach them. What are the temptations of parachurch ministry? The temptations. And then what are the considerations in deciding whether to be involved and how? 
The big temptation for parachurch ministry, the biggest one that I can see, when it comes to organizations, our culture largely has the following priorities that are reflected in evangelical Christian culture. Um, The main reason people join organizations is for what they call community or relationships. They want to be with other people and they want friends. And if they're not driven by biblical principles, that's what will drive them to do that. Sometimes they want to do ministry, but very often they want to do what kind of ministry they want to do in their own way. We all have the temptation to self-will. And if we're not careful, hopefully you can already start to see where this would favor someone to join up with a particular parachurch organization rather than serving in and through their own local church. Um, Also, there is an issue of authority, which is that people basically are not looking for authority at all, and they're not really looking for much accountability either. Well, into this particular environment, the parachurch world can swoop and provide the perfect opportunity to be involved with other people to the extent that you want, to minister in the way that suits exactly your own preference, and to do so without much real authority and accountability because you can just leave at any time and no one knows you at least anywhere beyond what you want. And then we put ourselves in a really, really poor spiritual position. So when considering getting involved in parachurch ministries, you need to be careful of these particular desires that lurk and tempt all of us when it comes to the way that we engage with and interact with other people. And so it's appropriate to put a few considerations out there for parachurch ministry. Considerations for parachurch ministry, and there are many, but these are just a few that I'll give you. Qualification of leaders. Qualification of leaders. Are the leaders of the organization truly connected as individuals to a local church for personal accountability? Are they biblically qualified to actually lead and to be in charge of other people? Or, and are they accountable? When you're listening to a sermon by someone and they're at a conference, they're on the radio, they're on a podcast or whatever, do you know where they're a church member at? Are they personally accountable to any church or anyone? Are they faithfully serving other people in their own church and accountable to real people who really know what they're doing? Or are they pretty much just free agents who are saying some right things? What about doctrinal standards? Are the organization's doctrinal standards clear, what they believe, what they teach? And is it clear to what degree people at different levels of those organizations must hold to them? Can you, as part of this particular parachurch ministry, voice biblical convictions and actually be able to say that certain views are right or wrong? Or do you have to refrain from doing that? What kind of view of Christianity are people going to get if they look at that organization and your ministry there? Are you implicitly going to teach others that doctrine doesn't matter? That the gospel is not that important because what really matters is this particular cause or doing good deeds? You obviously believe that sound doctrine matters or you probably wouldn't be here. Does your choice of parachurch involvement reflect that? A consideration for parachurch beyond these is mission drift or mission accuracy, or if you're partnering in a parachurch ministry, are you aware of its mission? Are you joining with something that is trying to support the mission of the church or biblical priorities and Christian priorities, or are you doing it and you're just going to be fighting against it? 
And if you are fighting against it, are you in a position to actually be able to affect a change? Or are you just kicking against the goads and having no chance to actually uh, have success? Another consideration is the potential neglect of body life. Body life within the church. We have Gifts that differ, the Bible says. We are different types of people. We have different ages and places and genders and stages of life and experiences. And God has designed the body just as he desired. And we, if we get involved in parachurch ministries in certain ways, can neglect the vital things that God wants to do through people that we might not necessarily choose to join with if we were just picking and choosing our own preferences. But they're there in the body for a reason. And they help us and they benefit us. Campus ministries, for example, may be very helpful for college students. An easy way for people to come and to get to know others who believe the gospel and to hear the truth and to get Bible studies started and to make use of time that might be more abundant at that stage of life that you can use well and you can get involved with other Christians. But you have to be very careful that things like that don't undermine the church and don't take you out of the tightest two relationships of older men and older women And that they don't take you out of serving people that are not like you. So we can use these things, but be careful that we don't get them out of balance or let these ministries subvert what God has designed the church to be and to do. And so, for example, a campus ministry may be very helpful, but it ought to push people back as well into a Titus II type of multi-generational ministries within the local body. Um. One other question about these before just a few final personal questions. Um, The other consideration is distinguishing who is in or out as a Christian. The local church should be very careful and has the capacity to do this well. Because God has given the authority on earth to the local church to have the keys of the kingdom. To say this person as far as we can tell, this person has a credible testimony of faith and is not undermining it with their life. The local church is the one that's given this, according to Matthew 18 and Matthew 16, according to the gospel. Parachurch organizations are not given that. And so there can be confusion that comes when anyone can participate and anyone doesn't have to hold to particular doctrinal convictions. So you want to make sure that anywhere you're serving in these ways is careful to distinguish gospel faith that is careful on the gospel, making sure to draw appropriate lines between who is in and who is out as far as who is a Christian. To make sure that you don't begin to muddy those waters. Finally, a few personal questions. If you are considering or if you are serving in a parachurch, um, are you using this as a way to do the area or type of ministry you prefer rather than what is needed in the body? If you think the church should be doing something it's not doing, have you talked to the leaders about that and found out if that's something they've considered, if it's something that could be done, or if it's something that maybe is not a biblical priority or a priority for the church right now? And it could be that you have an idea, which is a great idea, maybe in another setting or at another time, or it might be a great idea for the church right then and right now, but the leaders haven't thought about it. And so instead of running to a parachurch ministry and saying, well, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm good at, I'm going to go here, address this in the context of the church and say maybe this is something the leaders should consider or even have considered. So think about that and don't just use it as a way to kind of do exactly what you most prefer and most desire to do without actually working through that. Um, Another question to consider, do you serve in parachurch ministry to the neglect of one another commands that you are to exercise in the local church? 
Are you involved in parachurch because you're more comfortable with the people there than the people in your own local church? These are the kinds of things that you need to consider as you think about why you might want to join in with these ministries outside the church. Again, with all of this said, there are great benefits to these things. And it's a magnificent thing that people would use their individual time and abilities or multiple churches would join together in these endeavors to be able to support the mission of the church, to make disciples of Christ. And as far as they are doing that, this can be a very beneficial thing as long as we properly take care of all the responsibilities we have within the local church. So how are you ministering? Are you ministering in the church? This is what we've been talking about. I hope you're doing that and growing in that. And I hope that you'll consider how you might minister out from the local church. And as you go, that you'll talk with one another about how you might do this more and more faithfully. Let's pray together. God, thank you that we can serve you in such varied ways. Thank you that you've gifted us in different ways. Thank you that we have all these opportunities. And uh, we pray that you'd help us to exercise wisdom in doing what is best. And we pray that you would use our efforts to grow your church by spreading the word of God, by building people up in the faith, by, uh, by you being glorified in our hearts. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.